0: I'm Jess,
1: I'm Carl, I'm
2: Offie. and I'm August. Welcome back to The Periphery. This week we talked to John Markoff, longtime New York Times reporter covering many things, especially technology, Silicon Valley, uh, and uh, toward the end of his, his time there, material sciences. Um, but overall, just a watcher and observer of Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley culture, uh, AI, and um, currently recently released a book on the life of Stuart Brand. We had a fascinating conversation with him Kind of about what he's seen in his life, uh, contrasting that with our experiences of tech, and ultimately concluding with what the periphery is all about, which is collecting these kinds of tools um, from wherever we may see them and getting them from him as this observer of technology in America for the past 30, 40 years,
1: uh, you know, was actually really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, and John is also a native of Silicon Valley.
3: First, I'm a local boy. Um, I grew up in the shadow of Stanford. Uh, I grew up delivering newspapers to the future homes of both Steve Jobs and Larry Page, which of course is richly ironic because they did more to change the way news is delivered than any two other people on the planet. It used to be a very comfortable middle-class neighborhood. Now, uh, where my house was, we have billionaires as neighbors, or we we did. They both sort of left now, but there was a period. But the world changed pretty much completely. Um, I grew up in a, in a Palo Alto that was uh, bracketed by Stanford, uh, which was pretty insular, not really in the in the community, and the surrounding what was not yet Silicon Valley, which was an aerospace region. It had been an agricultural reason, region. It became during World War II and after an aerospace region, which, of course, laid the groundwork for Silicon Valley. And then I disappeared for eight years to college and graduate school in the Northwest, and I came back in 1977. So Silicon Valley um, had uh, you know, been named in 1971. Um, by 1977, it was up and flying, and there was the there were the beginnings of a personal computer industry. Um, Apple was, I think, founded in seventy six. The Homebrew Club started in nineteen seventy five, and I came back because I, I was trying to become a reporter, and I spent five years freelancing, mostly c- covering the defense industry at the time, because there was a you know the, the industry was really dominated by the defense industry, and the semiconductor industry was around, but no one really had noticed it yet
1: till the late seventies. He's been just present. Um Throughout the entire really fascinating history that this region has gone through, you know, who else or who is better to talk to than uh, someone who's accompanied this development throughout, you know, throughout its entire history.
2: And John Markoff, as he said, grew up in the shadow of Stanford, um, which wasn't so active, you know, when, you know, when he first came, became familiar with it. But he, you know, so this, this does it home. And I think that it rung, rung true to me when he said that the distinctive element of Silicon Valley is it's, it's diversity, or I guess it's pluralism. The, the fact that there are all these different strains here at once that while, sure, there was this that libertarian kind of um, uh, democratic and utopian uh, impulse kind of embodied by Stuart Brand himself, uh, who the, the guy who's, who's writing a book on, um, but more embodied by the people of the 90s who wrote the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace and things like that. At the same time, there were also the kind of VC tech bro culture. That was there, too. It was always there.
3: People tend to say Silicon Valley is X. And at the very roots of the whole thing, I think what differentiates Silicon Valley from the rest of the world is diversity. And that's everything from diversity of who came here to diversity of ideology. There is no one Silicon Valley. So, yes, you can you can make the case for any... Particular ideology you want you can find it in Silicon Valley. So yeah, there were there were democratic threads There were visionaries and optimists But there there were all these other things going on too and you could pick whichever you want But I actually think what sets Silicon Valley Apart from the rest of the world is it became the magnet for the best and the brightest and it attracted this um, immense diversity of humanity such that you can still I mean you know, almost half of the workforce of Silicon Valley is non is non you know white American. I
4: remember when I first moved up here. I moved here from San Diego, and San Diego not diverse, <laughs> but the Bay. I mean, the Bay in general, not just Silicon Valley. I I'm, I struggle to think of a more diverse place I've ever been to. You, everything's here, and everyone's here.
1: Yeah, and Silicon Valley has expanded more into the broader Bay Area. You know, a lot of these companies are headquartered in San Francisco, for example. So. You you can see, um, you know, you can see that influence of Silicon Valley throughout the entire region.
0: And I think it's his long history here and, you know, experiencing successes and failures that makes him maybe more of an outspoken skeptic about some of the technologies that like our generation is super excited about, like blockchain and crypto.
4: I really loved his calling the crypto sphere a total Ponzi scheme.
3: I am a supreme crypto uh, skeptic.
4: I read an article about burning it all to the ground, and I struggle to find a reason to disagree, especially as I talk to more and more people who are quite established in these fields. Uh, we should burn it to the ground. And he, he, he kind of separated blockchain from crypto.
3: So there's a the question of decentralized architectures, yeah. and then there's the question of this financial stuff on top of them. And if We pick them apart. So I, I worship at the church of a guy named David Rosenthal. Um, and Rosenthal is, um, he was a, earlier employee at Sun Microsystems, and he was the first technical employee at NVIDIA. Mm-hmm. And then after he left NVIDIA, he came here to Stanford, and he built this digital library system to basically call locks, to to distribute um, science, uh, academic journals, so that if you lost one at one institution, you could repopulate it, and he built a distributed system. So he knows what he's talking about in terms of distributed system architecture, mm-hmm. and he's a he's a critic of a lot of these attempts to you know argue that that dis- distribution is an end in itself and is a good in itself. Mm-hmm oftentimes it's more simple and makes a lot more sense to do something in a centralized fashion. Yeah. Particularly when you're burning all this electricity to, in the face of climate change.
4: I would put blockchain in there too. Uh-
2: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, he was saying that he wrote one of the earliest articles about uh, about blockchain. And I assumed that he was going to talk about Satoshi Nakamoto and Bitcoin. But actually, of course, you know, the theory is uh, behind, you know, the cryptography behind blockchain existed far before that. And he, re- I think he referenced uh, a system for delivering
4: ads to the New York Times. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah.
3: And- I wrote the first yeah. article about the boy. Okay. Oh, this <laughs> is
4: even more perfect. Because I just want to kind of get your take on just the parallels between the internet becoming a thing and the blockchain and crypto. Wait, when was this first article? Well, so
3: there was uh, two guys. Uh, one of them was HP Lab. Um, when was the first article? It was, it was a funny story, but I kind of remember it as well. So those guys created the blockchain, the first blockchain in the 1990s, probably the early 1990s, or maybe it was, was I in the East Coast still? Maybe it was in the 1980s. I'm trying to, their purpose was to build a system to allow people um, who were like doing things like keeping a scientific notebook to verify, you know, to publicly verify an invention or something. They wanted to be able to timestamp things. so that was the purpose of the blockchain.
4: Kind of like for like patents or something.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was. was. And um, I'll send you the article because it's kind of funny. And there was a funny after story, too, because they proposed this idea. You needed something that could be publicly verified. And they basically chose The the New York Times. And so they wanted to put an ad in The New York Times with a number. Mm -hmm. That was their way because there were no networks and stuff like that at this point. So this Mm -hmm. must have been the 1980s. And The Times Classified Advertising Department wouldn't take the number because they thought they were bookies. And so I had to go to the publisher and say hey these guys are for real and then we took the ads and I think that number is still shows up in the New York Times still to this day.
2: And you know in track and the original purpose was for example like verifying scientific notes and now I think he's totally disillusioned by like what um, what this technology is ostensibly being used for which is a huge wealth transfer.
3: is a mechanism for transferring wealth to early adopters hereby hereafter called geniuses to later rivals hereafter called suckers. That's all it is. And you know, it works great. It's very efficient.
1: (laughs) When a new idea is being pitched and, and you hear about decentralization and how that's inherently a valuable thing, I think it's good to just be skeptical and say, perhaps decentralization in some situations might add some value. But it's not an end in itself. And there are many situations where centralization might be just more efficient and and preferable. So um, it just shows that when you're being presented with these new business models and someone trying to pitch you their idea, it's always good to really think about not just buzzwords, but rather, what is the value that this is actually trying to achieve and capture? Mm
4: -hmm. Even more to that point, I feel like there's... Just broad conflation like between decentralization as an inherent good and democracy and democratizing things um, that doesn't necessarily require decentralization uh, that I've started to pick up on as like a red flag. Mm, man, this makes me really want to talk about
2: antitrust, but I'm going to restrain myself because that's unrelated.
1: Expanding a little more broadly and, and going into also this conversation that we had about jobs and automation, I think Silicon Valley is really good at putting forward these grand narratives and suddenly everything falls into that narrative and and that becomes like a historical inevitability but it's i think with someone with john markov's experience and having seen grand narrative after grand narrative emerge and then recede like he he really has that kind of experience to to see that grand narratives you know often they often they fall apart um and often they'll be replaced by some other narrative and and here it was really interesting to have a conversation about automation artificial intelligence um he was talking about how even already in the 90s people were saying well ai is basically going to replace all jobs and 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 lead to um Mass unemployment. The
3: conversation I had with Danny Kahneman, behavioral economist, and I was making this argument because I was a true believer in, you know, the the rapid increase in AI power was going to destroy all jobs. I was in that mindset because I could see stuff happening really quickly. And he stopped me when I was making, oh, when I was making the argument with respect to China, I was saying, you know, uh, automation is going to come to China. It's going to destroy all these jobs. It's going to lead to social unrest. And he said, I stopped me. He said, you don't get it. And he, he said, in China, they'll be lucky if the robots come just in time. And I said, what? And he walked me through the demographics of modern China. And after I saw that and I began to look at the rest of the world, I no longer look at technology in terms of what's happening in the world. I look at demography because the world as a whole, with the exception of Africa and the Middle East, is aging really rapidly, more rapidly than anybody understands. And. So I stopped, I changed the question I asked as a reporter, because there was a whole period where you were debating how soon we'd have self-driving cars. And I stopped asking that question. I began to ask people, (laughs) (laughs) I I began asking people, when will there be a robot that is sophisticated enough to give an aging human a shower? Much harder problem. Mm -hmm. Nobody has a clue when that's going to happen. And you know, the demographic trends, I think, are really overwhelming the pace of automation. I'm both in the case of markets and labor and the need for society to care for the aging.
1: We haven't really seen that development take place. Um, last year. Yeah. And, and so it's and so it's quite interesting. There are always other factors at play. And, and what I think was especially unique and what we hadn't really, really talked about before was how automation and AI, how that interacts with demographics, mm-hmm. um, with the fact that um western societies and and east asian societies are are aging pretty rapidly so it's maybe not so much the question of um you know how quickly are are all jobs going to be automated but perhaps you know are they not being automated quickly enough mm-hmm. to compensate for um for that demographic change
2: we're all familiar with this narrative right that it's it'll start first. First, they came for the blue collar jobs and then they'll come for the white collar jobs. And soon, you know, there'll be very little left cognitive or physical that humans can do that uh, robots powered by AI can't do better. Um, and yet, you know, that kind of that does really contradict our literal situation right now in which we have a huge labor shortage. Millions of jobs are available. And and also, yeah, as you mentioned, aging populations across the wealthy nations, uh, including China, South Korea, Japan. Um, and, um, you know, on top of that, we have jobs that the, the nature of jobs are changing. And he really emphasized, you know, technology, yes, but also the kind and number of jobs along with population growth. He re- he, he referenced how, uh, or Teamsters, the, the loggers, how due to a lot of automation, their health is better now, uh, which, you know, I imagine logging really, Takes a toll, um, and so he. But he wanted to emphasize fulfilling jobs, and I, 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 you know, I think the kinds of jobs that we're seeing, you know, they're going to change. Service jobs will probably exist for a while, I think, in some form or another. Um, but I guess what was really on my mind was um, piecework jobs you take on the Mechanical Turk and the, that Amazon website that breaks up tasks into uh, into tasks that you compete for in terms of time and you're paid. In my opinion, basically nothing. Um, and and how those kinds of unfulfilling jobs emerge that really humans, uh, you know, are designed for humans to do, uh, we don't really like that either. You know, it's actually far more complicated than those Silicon Valley narratives uh, that you describe. Um, and we should focus on the kind of labor we want to do, not whether we're going to labor at all.
4: About the, you know, are we automating fast enough? Uh, I'm taking a CSB course on future cities, and we had one of the executives at Zooks an automated car company, come. And... A lot of his presentation dealt with accessibility and like how self-driving cars, if we don't need a human in the car, would make a world, it would be a whole new world of accessibility of, well, one, you wouldn't even need to find parking, but also people who can't drive, blind people, uh, people who have aged out of driving. um.
1: Yeah, but even on the topic of um, self-driving cars, ultimately, our interactions with those cars are going to be quite complicated and, and it can create unpredictable outcomes. I mean, he was talking about, I haven't seen this video personally, but um, about a homeless person um, like trying to mess with an automated car and... In San Francisco.
3: You don't think about the second order problems. Like you just talked about self-driving cars not coming quickly enough. I love this video that went viral recently about the homeless guy taunting the Cruise uh, robot in San Francisco. Did you see this? That's such a cool photo. So, you know, the city of San Francisco has just let Cruise and Waymo turn robots loose without human drivers. So there are actually these robots. Well, they're everywhere, but there are also some that don't have humans in them. Okay, so what could go wrong? And this is this great scene of this guy playing basically a, um, uh, you know, playing like a a bull with a a Toreador kind of thing, trying to harass And The car is like completely confused. This is going to be such a thing. Every high school kid in the the world is going to want to play with.
1: Just how in the future (laughs) you you can see, you know, schoolboys all around the world trying to, you know, pull pranks on automated cars and trying to make them late. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that was also really interesting. It's, one one side is the technological side, but the other side is then how we as humans interact with the technology, and those interactions are going to be really interesting, but often quite unpredictable, and there are many factors that we might not be be able to account for um, from the from the very start.
0: Yeah, I think early predictor, early theories about um, automation really freeing up work and increasing personhood and identity in the workspace. They often um, they often viewed the like the engineer or the technical expert as like master over the machine, but that's just not the reality that's come to fruition. Like what we're seeing now is that oftentimes we actually don't know how the technology works, and so like we might help build it or help you know use it develop a data set, but at the end of the day, like nobody really can actually know what's going on in a black box algorithm. So that also complicates things too. Like it's not really, it's not really that people are becoming more capable or even more like empowered by the technology that's implicit in all of our work.
4: And it's not even like really straightforward on what that empowerment looks like. Uh, Markov gave the two experiences he had with automation on the one hand he lost a job. To an <laughs> HP printer. Yeah, you know, uh, and...
3: I've got personal stories about that on both sides. Um, so as a kid, my very first job, when I was like 14 or 15 years old, I was living in Palo Alto. There was a guy who was a, actually, he was one of the first, he later would found one of the first AI companies in the Valley of Intelligence. But Sheldon Breiner was getting his PhD in geophysics. And he had basically hung an array of magnetometers along the San Andreas Fault. And he was... Mm-hmm. Where they, what used to be called the Aero Astro Building, was no longer called the Aero Astro, There was a shack there, and he'd run these uh, communication cables back there. And he hired me because he had this pen plotter, and he was bringing all that data. In, and He wanted to see what the relationship between was magnetism and earthquakes. Mm. And my job as like a you know fourteen year old was to ride my bike out there every day and uh, stamp WWV time on the ink. Paint, you know, But he was not a hardware guy, and he screwed up. And instead of pulling the paper under the pens, he was having the paper was pushed. And so about every third day, I'd come out there, and there'd be this huge jumble of paper. And I couldn't figure out where to put the stamp. And, and so after about two months, he replaced me with a then-brand-new HP digital printer that printed the numbers. And so I was like an early victim of... <laughs> <laughs> but... Now, there was another, there's another component to that. On the Oh, and the other, okay, on the other side, here I am now in, in 2017. I've started doing this book on, on Stuart Brand, and I'm doing these interviews, and I'm paying for humans to transcribe them, and I'm using one of those mechanical Turk systems, and people are being paid a fair amount of money to transcribe. And then what they do is they break up the, you know, the companies that were set up to rationalize it, and they do it in parallel and stuff. So it's kind of interesting, but the quality is pretty good. But after a year, which I spent about $20,000, because I did a lot of interviews, wow. um, it went to zero, what I spent, because all of a sudden, the machine learning-based software from companies like Otter, I don't know if you guys have yeah. played with Otter. I use that. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's, I was paying $10 a month now yeah. for unlimited recording, yeah. and it was good enough.
4: On the other hand, he was spending $10,000 to transcribe um, interviews, and now he could do it for, what's it, 10 bucks? Uh, for zero, I think. Zero, yeah. And to the point of empowerment, you know, I, I'm sure to the transcribers, it's uh, kind of a, a bummer. But if you want to just, I don't know, become a journalist on a whim and start doing interviews, all of a sudden you're empowered to capture those stories and and, uh, and analyze them. Um, not so far removed from our ability to make a podcast with very little big technical help that 50 years ago, you'd need like a whole studio to pull off.
0: I don't really know what, if this is a good or bad thing. But one thing I've noticed, um, just in terms of like a specific example of an AI tool, you guys know like Grammarly? Yes. I remember when Grammarly like first hit the scene and I was like, I don't like, I'm good at grammar. Like I studied English. Like this is sort of the sort of thing that I'm good at. And I have now in multiple work settings had um, superiors like recommend to everyone working there that all are ostensibly like good writers and communicators like you guys should use grammar. (laughs) You guys should be using Grammarly. Like, isn't that crazy? Because it's just it's just seen as I don't know, maybe leveling a playing field. But at the same time, I wonder, like, to what extent is that just. I don't know. um, What's the what's the word like making making it monotonizing, like. All of our communication,
2: right? And the, like, there's a whole host of issues with, yeah, uh, grammarly with natural language processing in general. We, uh, John Markov has been focusing on that, and he told us that right now funding is strong for NLP.
3: Google's machine learning work, where they were, you know, they were starting to, to use these new techniques, and they were paying off, and you're getting these great upticks in accuracy, and you could see that something was going to happen, was significant, and then, you know. The money flows changed and followed it. You know the 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 investment Silicon Valley venture investment in in um, social media I think peaked in two thousand eleven or two thousand twelve and it really collapsed Mm -hmm. and everything shifted to machine learning. I mean the the valley swarms really efficiently and that's what happened to the capital. And what was really striking to me is how long this long boom in investment has been. And I just looked and the you know the the dollar amounts are still going up in machine learning. And
2: um, I mean. Another thing that I I always think about here, because this is how I, int- I I've started looking at NLP uh, things like GPT three by OpenAI. I think software that can write pretty realistic articles, even poems, essays. For example, Grammarly is learning from our writing. Mm-hmm. We're teaching ourselves in <laughs> in many ways, you know. And so, what are who, who gets credit there? Who gets credit for the writing that's so heavily influenced by Grammarly? I can e- easily imagine Grammarly just starting to write for people. That's true. Um, and so I think that there's this issue of like, is that kind of the, the output, the kind of expressive output that we that we want in, in our writing, but also who gets credit for it? Who gets paid for it? You know, it's pretty complicated.
4: I find this so mirrors our conversation about uh, Jaffer and these algorithms like moderate content, learning from us and <laughs> learning what we want and we like learning our
0: editorial impulses. Yeah. And in terms of creative AI, just like something I... A quick point that from the interview, August, you were talking about like music you were listening to online and it was, I think you said it was like country music and you're like, I can't tell if this is original or redundant.
3: To compose music, it sounded a lot like Bach if you felt a lot of Bach into it. Yeah. Yeah, What does that mean?
2: Like I've heard, you know, songs generated by machine learning tools, uh, by like OpenAI and other companies. Um, and it's like seventy five percent Elvis, twenty five percent Sinatra, and it's country. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, would you listen to it? I listen to it. I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't listen to it like on the daily. But but I was fascinated by it. I was like, this sounds both original and not original at the same time, and I can't really tell what it, what it is. Dude, that's a feature, not bug.
0: If it's right. country music, that's a feature, not a <laughs> bug. That's country music's thing. That's
2: true. That's true. But this was country music that was, and they had it down to like it was. If, I'll try to bring up the track. I'll show you guys, but it was like 75% Elvis, 25% Frank Sinatra. Lyrics were new, and it was in a country style. And so it was just like, who gets credit for that? You know, it's 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 I, I, it's both original yeah, and unoriginal. Yeah. yeah, you know, and yeah, is do we do, do we deserve? You know, is it fair to say this is an entirely original product when we know that it's 75% Elvis? Right?
0: I'm just a tiny bumble star but the little hitch tells the heart when my thoughts run my hair is sizzling fine last, when you woke up in mind i'm just again wish for help from the guts who kept to rack when is she tea with the chorus this ambition and i mean it, it's not
1: completely of course it's not completely unlike how music has been created in the past—it's always, you know, artists have always been influenced by other artists and yeah. tried to incorporate those elements. Oh yeah. Um, so it's not like you know, no, 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 art has ever really been created from com- from a complete clean slate. Right. But still, it's strange when um, that decision of how to recombine these elements and create something new from them, when that's being done in an autom- automatic way and not by some kind of act of like human right ingenuity right
2: this goes to um we received a comment from our audience at the beginning of the season asking about you know this issue that you know it was important to him it's important to me too it's 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 learning isn't a copyright violation (laughs) when we learn something when we learn how some music sounds we try to use the technique uh when we learn from a book we're not you know sure we're making copies i guess in a way in our brains but that's okay and then we use that learning and we incorporate it in our works in our expression it's impossible to track you know like but here I know this is 75% Elvis. <laughs> and and yeah. what do you do with that knowledge? You know, I, I mean, I, it does change things. It changes how we look at the creative process,
1: I think. I mean, I guess it's also interesting for, in, in copyright law, there's also, if you invent something independently, even if it's completely identical Correct. to a former copyrighted work, yeah. then that is not copyright infringement, mm-hmm. if I remember IP correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... If I mean, of course, if you're kind of explicitly, but like, you know, these inputs into the algorithm, if you're explicitly putting in kind of Elvis type music or Elvis's music, Mm -hmm. and then letting the algorithm kind of create something new or something even that is like identical to Elvis's music, that, of course, to me would seem to be infringement. Mm -hmm. But what if you like, take just all of the, you know, hypothetically, you take all of the cultural influences that influenced Elvis, but not Elvis's work itself, but then it happens to kind of create something that is exactly like Elvis's music. Right. Is that independent invention? Yeah, yeah well, you know? I think
2: it's fair to say though, that at that point, we've recreated a human mind. Right,
1: yeah, of course, it, it would be so complicated. This is of course, completely hypothetical, but you know, in law school, we love to, right. well, we love to, to talk to in all day
2: long. I mean, this is an important point. It was like, as much as these algorithms are black boxes, I think they're a bit more legible than our minds, which are truly black boxes, you know? It's very hard to Even tell. to ourselves. Yeah, even to ourselves. You're like, yeah. why did I do that?
0: <laughs> As we're all sitting here, like, I'm not sure what the point I'm trying to make is, but. And I
2: was like, oh yeah, you know, like, yeah, what's the provenance of that thought? You know, where'd you get it from?
1: One day the podcast itself is gonna be fully automated <laughs> where we're just gonna feed in some information and they're just gonna recreate our voices.
4: Here's the interview, you know where we're going with this. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we'll, I guess,
2: wrap this up soon.
4: Yeah, okay.
2: But I just, you know, I guess I feel like we should touch on, you know, going back to Markov's main profession, being a journalist. We talked about newspapers. Um, he was sure uh, back in the, you know, maybe uh, 10 or 15 years ago that the New York Times was going to struggle, just like all other newspapers would struggle.
3: There are people like me who are going to uh, read the New York Times until they died. Uh, that was the good news. The bad news is they were dying. <laughs> <laughs> Now more of them have died. <laughs> However, I, I, you know, I just saw the Times just reported their quarterly results, and they they have um, nine million subscribers. And I That's never great. would, <laughs> yeah, I never would have thought that they would have made it. I thought that the model would work at three million when they were trying mm-hmm. to. You know, when there was this period when they thought they could survive on advertising, and then the 2008 um, recession came, and that was clearly not working. And so they made this bold. Late. You know, the journal did it early, but the Times finally went to subscription, and that seems to be the
2: future now. He didn't think that the New York Times would exceed uh, 3 million subscribers, but now it's well beyond that. I think it's like 12 million or something. So, obviously, in this era, large newspapers, established media institutions are becoming a bit more than newspapers, and they
4: figured out a way to survive. Were they paid? Like, did you have to pay for the New York Times like 20 years ago? I feel like he must have paid for a paper copy. Okay. I'm just like wondering.
1: Online, I think they switched from an advertisement model to a Jesus, subscription yes. model.
4: So I'm just like wondering, like, what does that mean for accessibility to just news in general? And like, the, when like New York Times or other, like the Wall
2: Street Journal or someone, uh, posts an article that they think is particularly important for the public to know right now. Maybe it's about COVID or something. But give us three bucks. They'll make it free. And they'll be like, read this as if it's just, you know, something else, you know, just, just, you know, it's like a free news website. But normally there are these paywalls. You know, the true victims of, I guess, Consuming information on platforms is the local monopoly papers that used to dot every town that, you know, serve that community. Sometimes there were a few. Um, When was the last time you guys read a local
4: news source? Like two years ago, Moran and Moran. And of course, Moran still is able to afford a local newspaper. It's Moran. It's rich. (laughs) But it's been a while and it also just reminds me of when we went to another one of our classmates her dad was purchasing up That's all right. the media oh, yeah. <laughs> he was like oh yeah big consolidator
2: right. uh, and he was celebrated for figuring out a way to survive mm-hmm. you know as a newspaper yeah is by being big you know mm-hmm. eating up things and then you know finding some model that works yeah um so yeah last th- time i read one was the oc register in orange county i don't even like it that much like, I don't think, like, oh, I don't the, the register definitely
4: has a big. I like to read it. the
0: local newspaper when I visit my family, um, in this small town in Indiana, because the police reports are really funny. They're like all about like raccoons on bird feeders and stuff.
2: Uh, yeah. Well. Anyway, I'm sure they'll find a way. Those raccoons <laughs> and those local newspapers. Well, yeah. have we done it? It's so, been done.
4: Well, on that note, we have a Patreon where. Sometime this summer, we will be releasing almost all of the interviews that we've recorded for the season so you can get the raw footage. Uh, And just like on Patreon, we are on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere, our email, we have the Periphery Podcast, our TikTok. So follow us there, give us feedback, and we will talk to you next week. Almost certainly. Sometimes you miss it.